Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of this Dynasty Fantasy Football Podcast, and the first to be searchable on Apple Podcasts and Spotify under the name Fantasy For Real. I'm not sure if the name will stay or not, and the logo almost definitely won't as is, but for right now, this is what I'm going with, and I'm your host, CJ Friel. I don't have time to talk about the name and the logo anymore, because this is a fairly packed show, and on today's show, I'm going to cover some important tips bits about the NFL Combine briefly at the beginning and a little bit more detail at the end. I'll also be talking about some NFL players focusing on some intriguing values on aggregates like Keep Trade Cut and Fantasy Calc. The main portion of this show, though, will be my final 2024 rookie rankings update before the NFL Scouting Combine. I have gone over these rankings a bit, so maybe it'll be a little bit repetitive for some people if you've listened to every episode, but there's a little bit of difference because this set will particularly focus on the tiers, the tier breaks, where things are becoming clear, and where things are still controversial. Before I get into any of that, though, I would like to thank everyone for joining me today. Hopefully, being searchable will help anyone who enjoys this show find it more easily. If you have found this show for the first time, you probably don't know who I am, and that's okay. But the one thing I will say, and I said something similar in the first show, is there are really two reasons you should listen to this show, which is that, number one, I have my own opinions, and I do differ from the market at times. But regardless of that, I will do a lot of the work for you. I do a lot of research and work to try and make sure that these things are presented in a way where even if you don't agree with me, you can get something out of it. Something out of the information, something out of the data. There are tidbits that you could probably take away even if you don't agree. And secondly, I will try to make this an honest show. So that means that there will be celebrations of victory, but more importantly to the process, this show understands that people get things wrong, I get things wrong, and I will not hide from the fact that mistakes have been made in the past. I've been writing in fantasy sports for probably about eight to 10 years if we're including you know message board writing is writing as long as you're taking it very seriously i've had a focus in football for over half that time and i've specifically been focused on dynasty and prospects for the last three years i've had a couple columns the last year so even if you just look at these last three years that is so much time to have these smash hits and the utter defeats so bottom line this show will hopefully speak for itself and you know just give it a chance so these are points where i would make uh, a noisy transition or signal a, a start of a new section if i were a bit more polished or had a little bit more production in what i'm trying to accomplish the bottom line is we're moving into talking about the nfl combine and really getting into the beginning of the show so if you're someone who really likes to get into the weeds and build your own models and your and do your own prospect evaluations. I will do a longer segment on measurements involving the combine at the end of the show talking about what I'm really looking for to kind of change little things, you know, with my own mindset that I'm about to get to that is essentially that most measurements are ultimately more likely to be overrated than properly rated. Now, obviously, because I'm implementing them, I'm trying to beat that logic a little bit. And again, I'll get to that at the end of the show. But generally speaking, you shouldn't worry about especially individual measurements unless they're really the only time you should care about individual measurements is if they're really, really far in the outlier range off the scale. Right. Like when Keishon Butte 
jumps 29 inches. That is the only time an individual measurement should get to you when when somebody doesn't jump as much as the average 300 pound offensive lineman is jumping at the combine. But other than that, the number one rule about the combine to me is that instead of looking at all these numbers and trying to make a ton of sense of them, you really want to listen to a couple insiders that you pick, maybe two or three from different companies, ideally, so that you can get a little bit of different information, hopefully. A couple favorites of mine are Daniel Jeremiah and Dane Brugler, because while there are smoke screens, while there is going to be bad information out there, the number one advantage that the NFL scouting combine gives us as people who do this is that the NFL scouting combine gives us the opportunity to put all these important individuals in the NFL game in NFL front offices and NFL scouting departments and put them all in the same place. So when they're all in the same place, some information might change hands. And if that information changes, that changes hands is potentially intriguing to us. That's how we can really get potentially ahead of the curve, so to speak. And that's really what we're ultimately trying to do. So, uh, like I said, I will cover the combine in more detail at the end of the show. But for now, let us get into the first major section of this show. And so on to some some interesting values, right? Let's talk about some NFL players. This is something that I'm going to start to do a little bit more on the show, you know, especially when we're not fully in draft season prospects are my passion, but obviously we got to talk about NFL players sometimes. And I didn't want to call this buys or sells. I did mention overvalued, undervalued, but that's mostly because I didn't want to use words like controversy again, because that's really what I'm, I'm doing here. I'm trying to find intriguing value points to kind of talk about because either they're, they're moving or because my values are significantly far away. Uh, so a couple of things just to note before I get into this, I am not discussing rookies, right? The very first thing, I noticed when I pulled up uh, all these ranking evaluations is that Marvin Harrison Jr. and Caleb Williams are the 12th and 13th ranked player. That's definitely something worth talking about, but that's, I think that's kind of completely separate discussion of values. And that kind of leads me to my next point, which is that I have actually never written up a dynasty startup ranking for all the other things I have done. And the main reason I have not ranked a dynasty startup ranking is that I just find it to be such a headache to consider all the different Rank, rookie rankings are a headache, but the headache comes from just deciding between who is better between two players. I don't have to consider every single situation a team can be in because while there are differences in like when a team might be looking for a running back or not, it's really not the biggest difference that we're really gunning for. Whereas like if you're full committed to a productive struggle or a, a, a build in your opening draft where you drafting younger players and don't expect to compete necessarily as much in the first year, you probably don't want to take like a Cooper cup or a Tyreek Hill. Like those guys at least should be comparatively far lower on your draft board. So I guess my point in saying all that is that I will try to talk about these guys in context of why, you know, I would move them up or down or why they're controversial. But at the end of the day, you know, saying that I would take this player over like Tyreek Hill might have to specifically Tyreek Hill might have to do with, just 
where you're at in what you're trying to do as a dynasty team. So that's obviously always the thing, but I, I just feel like I have to address that because so much of what I do is in rookies. And part of that is because I don't like to address this part because it's so hard to predict what every single team needs. So my standard 12 team super flex, no tight end premium, but again, most conversations are going to be very positional. So the first thing I want to talk on is two quarterbacks, one who is a first round startup pick a couple years ago and is creeping back up and another that I may have to gag a few times to get through the segment. So up first is Kyler Murray, and because I want to make it short and sweet, I, I don't really think I have too much to say about Kyler Murray. I think it's a very simple conversation. Kyler Murray is 27 this October, I believe. He has an archetype that allows him to score many different ways as a quarterback, and when you really just look at it from a very basic perspective when you just look at his age his position the value of that position and his career points per game he really should be closer to being a first round startup pick than the mid to late second round startup pick that he's going more often and then while there is an injury risk from the perspective of if he has another injury so close together that's going to be an extra concern compared to say other players having injuries at least potentially there's also going to be some offensive additions that are going to be exciting in Arizona and all kinds of things. Now, maybe once those those come and once startup drafts actually start happening quite a bit more after the NFL draft, maybe we will see Kyler Murray closer to that, you know, that turn pick. But I think Kyler Murray is closer to that turn pick. And I'll, I'll get to some comparisons once I get through the second quarterback. But the second quarterback and I support the Bears, is Jordan Love. And Jordan Love is turning 26 in November. And it's always important to remember that short samples you know, can be misleading. You never want to make too much of short samples. But one thing I argue about all players is that I feel like sometimes we forget that part of the reason we were so bad for like all of history judging short samples is that we didn't have good numbers. We didn't have good analytics. We, you know, people judge short samples literally just by passing yards, literally just by completion percentage. And while some of those things are better in the differences between Jordan Love, the things when you look deeper look better as well, at least in terms of the analytical side of things. And then outside the analytical side of things, he is paired with this coach in LaFleur who has proven to be a pretty good co coach at scheming things up for his quarterback. Now, some people don't like using playoff stats, and this is kind of the exact same thing that I was just talking about. These kind of go hand in hand. I feel like people don't like playoff stats because there was a point in time where people overrated playoff stats substantially, and there was a pushback for that because playoff stats shouldn't be considered extra important. But when you're judging how a player is progressing, especially for what I'm doing here in Dynasty fantasy, football it might be important to look at you know playoff stats as a part of a sample just to build a larger sample but anyway that's just a preamble to the fact that in his first 10 games all in the regular season love's pace in a 17 game season was just under 60 percent completion at 59.7 percent just under 4,000 yards at 3,963 27 touchdowns and 17 interceptions 
the pace of his last nine games, which does include his last two playoff appearances, 70.1%, an increase of over 10%, 4,331 yards, which is a mild increase, but 40 touchdowns and six interceptions was the pace there. A 13 touchdown increase with an 11 interception decrease on the pace. As someone who's witnessed one of them as a fan, I don't think this is really anything like the Daniel Jones or the Mitchell Trubisky seasons. This does feel a little bit more legitimate in terms of the pivot point that he found in the middle of the season and just played consistently well after that pivot point. Is that sustainable? I'm not exactly sure, but going to the point I was making at the beginning of this section, even just analytically, Love's profile is pretty special compared to those other guys I was just talking about. Now, I don't want to get into all the specific numbers, but suffice to say, you can look at very broad things like just general PFF grade, as well as some more important things I look for specifically like generating big time throws while avoiding turnover worthy plays and crucially avoiding sacks even on pressures. That is a stat I found to really like in projecting young quarterbacks. So again, I don't know if this is sustainable for love, but I do think he is slightly underrated at this point still. The only thing I can really say is that he did fumble the ball 11 times. But ultimately, if he's a good quarterback, that's not going to be something that holds him back. So the bottom line, if you're looking for practical value perspectives, this might be philosophical, but in both fantasy calc and keep trade cut, Bijan Robinson, Brees Hall, Jameer Gibbs are all ranked above these two quarterbacks with Christian McCaffrey right at the same point. These are two quarterbacks in a super flex league that I am not considering a running back over them. So that already gets them three spots up the rankings at least. And then the one that I think a lot of people really love and are, are really attached to at their own position I would take them over Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson is an incredible prospect. He has an incredible projection, and he has the ability to be an incredible rushing quarterback with touchdowns if he remains healthy. And it's really not even the health to me. I think sometimes things happen when, you know, some depending on how you look at players, when you see them do something that you don't expect, you react very differently. To me, I grade players both on traits and, and production in kind of ways, you know, they, they overlap with one another because your traits are how you drive up your production, but they mean different things to me because production is proving something. And my issue with how much people have changed their confidence level in Anthony Richardson is that, okay, we saw a little bit more proof of concept in the traits, but the traits grade was always really, 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 really high. And I understand that like how he smoothly processes the field or seems to be comfortable playing the game is a little bit of a different thing than some of the things people were attributing. But those were also things that were talked about in regard to Anthony Richardson. Again, more proof of concept, even seeing it in four injured games, but he still doesn't have anything in regards to production, in my opinion. Production is proof. He doesn't have any of that. He doesn't have proof. Is he still somebody that I have a lot of faith in? Sure. I'm not saying that I don't have faith in him because I'm not saying that I would you know, drop him out of the second round, maybe. But if I'm looking at these quarterback rankings that are pretty unanimous in the idea that Anthony Richardson is like a turn pick at the one-two turn in a startup league and Kyler Murray and Love are a little bit down after the running backs, I would flip that. I would take Kyler Murray. I would have no problem 
you know, I, I haven't done the math of who exactly would be on the board, so they might not be my favorite two players, especially after everything else comes in. But I might take Kyler Murray and Jordan Love as a turn in a super flex league and lock up my quarterbacks with two quarterbacks who have at least three years before they turn 30. Next up, to alleviate some of my pain, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite players to discuss, Nico Collins. 2022 was a very underrated season with Nico Collins, and I think that's one of the things I see the most differently with Nico Collins. Nico Collins is entering this environment in 2022 in his second year where the starting quarterback is Davis Mills and the head coach is Lovey Smith, who it's wild in a sense that he's even a head coach in the year 2022, and it's important to note that he's probably not going with a very forward offensive identity for any team that Lovey Smith is coaching. And so in 2022, I think people also outright just forget the fact that he missed seven games and dealt constantly with injury. And they just look at like 500 yards and they say, well, he was never more than a 500 yard receiver, but even just on those stats alone, his pace season was for over 800 yards. And I honestly just feel like we would feel differently about Nico Collins, you know, not to say that having a pace of it and doing it are the same thing because they're not. But if Nico Collins had an 800 yard season before this breakout with CJ Stroud, I feel like we would treat him so much more legitimately. And then beyond the raw yards, we can look at things like yards per route run. And while a 1.68 yards per route run does not pop off the screen, it is a very solid number. I find that maybe the high ones might end up being kind of a market inefficiency for yards per outrun, which this is kind of really deep into the weeds in a sense, but people don't like weird numbers, okay? And what I mean by that is when you can say, you know, anything above two is great, people are just going to say, all right, great, now I know that. When you get to two, you're great. But if like actually 1.85 is when you get to great, people aren't going to like that. They're just going to say, no, I'll stick with two. Two's fine. And my point in saying all that is that I have found a lot of times, you know, people just don't realize how successful wide receivers score in this stat, right? So I just took a couple random sampling of wide receivers around the league. Chris Godwin, Terry McLaurin, Devonta Smith, uh, Michael Pittman, DK Metcalf, Amari Cooper, some very good wide receivers. And out of the 33 seasons that these players have collectively played, only 11 of them have made it over a two yards per out run. And a lot of those are two even, 205, 204, 203, 2.1. Most of these guys' careers, 187, 189, 197, 173, 173. You know, obviously these are all num- random numbers, but the point is that when you look at all these numbers all together, you're getting a lot of 17s, a lot of 18s, a lot of 19s. And I think it's I think people just don't judge those seasons as being as impressive as they are, even in low volume. You know, you have to treat low volume like low volume, but a 60 target season where you're popping a 1.7 or a 1.8 is fairly impressive. And I, by a market of inefficiency, I feel like that's a number that doesn't seem to highlight things for a lot of people or seem to get picked up by a lot of people. And I do think it's significant. I do think it's worth looking into when players are in those high ones. And so that's kind of what led me to Nico Collins in the very first place is the idea that his yards per route run was very solid in the context of the system. 800 uh, 800 receiving yards was better than he was giving it credit for, especially in the context of the season. And so when you turn it into 2023, Did I expect him to do what he did? Heck no. But I think it's also important to note that 
what he did went beyond what he was doing before, which was making contested catches and not dropping the football and getting open downfield and became becoming the sixth best yak receiver in football, or at least by total yardage, you know, who's the best that's up to your subjective opinion, but the sixth highest producing yak receiver in football, right? That was Nico Collins. And to be very, very clear, I don't even know if I separated out the postseason stats for that one. So he might not have been quite that high, but the point is he was never a yak guy and he got a ton of yak yardage. Overall in the season, he played 17 total games, including the postseason, and had over 1,400 yards and a 3.11 yards per out run, which is one of the best figures you've seen, you know, basically ever, really, if you really break it down. But it's one of the highest figures you've seen in the last several years, and it includes a game in which he played only two snaps, so it's much closer to a 16-game sample than a 17-game sample by one, at least one way to look at it analytically. So some of the names that were ranked higher on cute trade cut than Nico Collins that I would take Nico Collins over include Drake London, Devonta Smith. I did put an asterisk by Tyree Kill because again, that's just kind of a whole different conversation. If you really, really are trying to win the championship, the next two years are probably a good situation, you know, to favor Tyreek Hill. If you actually believe he's going to retire, though, it's only going to be the next two years, I believe. And Nico Collins is a very young receiver that's playing very well. I would also take him over Jalen Waddell. And then these are the two that get the closest. But I have Nico Collins right now ranked about the same, if not higher, than Brandon Ayuk and Chris Olave. So I do understand why so many people are scared of it because people see patterns. People see patterns all the time. And early production is becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger pattern. Rookies produce. It's becoming a bigger and bigger pattern. But just because a guy doesn't fit one specific pattern, we can't stop evaluating him. And that's what I feel like a lot of people are doing with Nico Collins. We stopped evaluating him and you know, we're putting him at a place that we're saying, well, he deserves to be somewhere semi-fairly high. But as a receiver who had 1,400 yards and is paired with a very young quarterback and is himself very young, I understand that you know some people are going to freak out if maybe they draft a wide receiver in the first round. Even if they draft a wide receiver in the first round, I have Nico Collins graded high enough that it's not going to matter that much to me. I just think he is a player who can continue to have huge weeks consistently at the NFL level over a long period of time. And those players don't grow on trees and they especially don't grow up to be six foot four on trees. And Nico Collins is a big, explosive, athletic dude. So that is why Nico Collins is closer to my wide receiver eight on a overall startup ranking. Finally, and I do have a few more of these for Thursday's show, but this show is quite long at this point. And Ty J Spears does seem to have a bit of hype, both on Keep Trade Cut and Fancy Calc, though it's a little bit higher on Keep Trade Cut. And he is the player I've actually talked about for this segment, like in terms of just teased it out or discussed on a social media platform. So I figure I need to at least cover Ty J Spears, the running back from Tennessee. I really like evaluating a player like Tajay Spears because they're in this very intriguing place where they're kind of like, you kind of have to evaluate him half as a pro and half as a prospect because he did get significant work in the passing game, but especially as like a full three down running back, he only had double digit carries in one game. So the one thing to say about 
the receiving work is that he had three plus receptions 11 times. And I did look at the eight games that Levis played the most. And in those eight games, he had 33 targets, which is a, which is a pace of 70. And so I do think from a, from a projection perspective, you would expect a quarterback like Levis to be slightly worse than someone like Tannehill when it comes to how often they're going to be in a check down situation. But ultimately he did use Spears quite a lot. Spears also did have some impressive numbers as a receiving back in terms of you know breaking tackles and extending some of those plays. And in just in terms of a general overall NFL player, he did show some of the traits that were part of his college game in terms of the burst, the contact balance, and the overall you know well-roundedness of that game that we saw. And really, I think you know, Tyshe Spears was a guy who I think was really going to go off like a rocket ship in terms of up rankings. If it wasn't for how degenerative his knee is. Now, I I don't know anything about medicine, but what I can tell you is that people who do seem to be very afraid of his longevity. But for me, longevity at running back is an inherently risky thing. So if the Titans believe that he can play at the NFL for a couple of years in the same way that teams believe Jay Ajayi could play at the NFL for a couple of years... That's not scaring me off right now. And it's important to know what I mean when I say that rise was coming is that, man, down the stretch of the season, this guy was incredible. In his last eight games, he had 121 in each of them. And in the final three games, which are significant games because, you know, to contextualize just from the college football perspective, this is a two-lane football team that plays in a lower conference. This season, they won late games to make it to the conference championship, won the conference championship by winning the conference championship. They got an automatic qualifier to play USC in a new year six bowl and they beat USC. That might be the most accomplished two lane team in history. And in the three biggest games, including the game they needed to win to win their division, the game after they won their division to win their conference and the game against USC, Ty J Spears had 181, 199, and 205 rushing yards. Just rushing yards. 585 yards and seven touchdowns in his last three games. The other running backs on his team, so I did take out Michael Pratt's rushing, 14 rushing yards, 8 rushing yards, 19 rushing yards. So while Spears had 585, his team had 41 outside of him. These are the kind of college performances that I really do love because a lot of times guys are just a part of their system, even if they're a part of very important games or teams, or even if they're putting up big numbers. But Ty J Spears is the kind of guy that you can look at and say, like, man, they really needed him, and he might have been the difference between the greatest two-lane team in the last several years, maybe ever, and a disappointing season, or at least one where you didn't come near to those heights. And so I think those are, you know, is it very narrative-based? Sure. I mean, we're looking at the numbers, but it's very narrative-based. But Ty J. Spears is this guy where once you get past the knee, when you look at the traits, when you look at the production, when you look at how explosive the production was, it's really easy to see him as a player who again, would have skyrocketed rankings, I honestly think, because I was, like, the more I looked into him, there, if there was one player last offseason, I'm not saying he was a great running back, okay? I'm not saying he got within a tier of Gibbs and Bijan. But if there was one player where every time I looked into him, I liked him a little bit more, it was Ty J. Spears. So for that reason, you know, 
even with that in mind, when I saw his keep trade cut and fantasy cock ranking, I really didn't think I would be, you know, okay with it. But with that in mind, and after seeing the receiving profile, my bottom line is honestly that I really do think you're betting on the market on whether he's going or whether the Titans are going to bring somebody in or keep Henry or draft somebody or if he's going to be their number one. Because if Spears is their number one, I think his price is pretty fair right now. Like, yes, it's a really high running back too, but he is a very talented guy. Running backs peak early, and he did some really nice things as a receiver, which is ultimately extremely important for this game. So, you know, the team, the Titans might not be great. That's obviously a concern as well. But my bottom line right now is that Ty J. Spears is a fair value at a very high keep trade cut price. And so, like I said, I do plan on making a second episode this week where I will continue that segment. I will cover just a few more players I have highlighted in my notes. Uh, I didn't say this at the top of the show because I just wanted to get into it a little bit first. But whether you're a new listener or someone who has listened to all six episodes, I would encourage you to rate this show and review it on any podcast app where this is searchable. I'll have more on which apps that is on. On Thursday, I won't ask only for a five-star review, but I will ask if possible that if you think less is fair, that you let me know what you believe could be better in the review. Now, to be clear, if you're the type that always hands these kind of things out for free, I will take them. But in early stages, I'm more interested in making sure I build this into a product that people want to listen to than and, and find value in than just, you know, getting the reviews. So on to the next part of the show. It's important to note that if you followed the show since the beginning, a little bit of these rankings might be repetitive. Now, to be clear, every time I do a new version of a ranking, I try to add some new tidbits on players or discuss new things, and there is a difference in how I'm approaching these, which is that I'm focusing on the tiers and the differences between players and tiers rather than kind of profiling the players themselves. So with that in mind, I hope even if you've listened to the last two ranking shows, even if some things kind of sound repetitive because you've heard me say the same things a couple times, that there are new things you can find in this show. And also, I think a lot of people might like this better overall, depending on what you like in these kind of shows, because whereas my first... the only other show I've talked about where I've covered this many players in a ranking was the very first show, and I did that over the course of two hours. This is going to be over the course of a little over 30 minutes, and I'm going to really stick to the things that decide the tiers between these players. And so the goal here is not to necessarily profile players. I've shortly profiled a lot of players in the ranking show for four or five minutes. I've profiled a lot of players in the deeper dive shows for 10 or 15 minutes. I'm also going to go in the standard order of quarterback, running back, wide receiver, tight end. And I I will say right off the bat, you know, I said I was, I use consensus within, within my arguments and I do that and I have opinions outside of that. But I will say that my quarterback rankings at this point are pretty much chalk. You know, I love Drake May. I love Jaden Daniels, but feeling more confident every day that Caleb Williams is my quarterback one in this class. It seems to be a consensus opinion that Caleb Williams is the quarterback one in this class. And it seems the number one thing that people who dislike Caleb Williams seem to go after are more of the off-field things. And I don't really have as much of a problem with those simply because the people that I trust to 
to tell me when things are a problem or to hint at things being a problem don't really seem to have a problem with it at all. So basically, you know, when, when all the nameless accounts on Twitter are the ones that have the biggest problem, no offense to anybody who believes in anything negative about Caleb Williams, but I'm just not someone who has a big issue with the personality myself. I don't let it affect the grade myself. And so that is part of the reason why Caleb Williams is my quarterback one. Moving on to Drake May and Jaden Daniels. If I was doing a one quarterback league, I would probably rank Jaden Daniels higher because of the rushing upside because I do think the difference in the ceiling and floor outcomes kind of change the story a little bit if you're talking super flex or one quarterback but my rankings are mostly built for 12 team super flex leagues and so in that circumstance Drake May is my quarterback too Drake May also has significant rushing upside you don't see it as much in the numbers but part of that is because and it's the dumbest statistical change between college and the NFL that college football takes out sacks as part of a quarterback's rushing yards which really does skew or at least make the data really hard to read for what we're trying to do in nfl terms in the way that the nfl calculates rushing yards which does not take out rushing yards for sacks drake may had almost nine he had 899 rushing yards in his sophomore year so while he is not quite as mobile as Jaden daniels because he's not he's not an explosive rusher you know Jaden daniels offers the opportunity to be an explosive rusher drake may is mobile enough and he he he, he represents an archetype a little bit more of what we're looking for ideally because on the Jaden Daniels side of things and actually my plan for the next episode is to profile Jaden Daniels in further detail in one of those 10 to 15 minute profiles but Jaden Daniels did not break out until his fifth year now he did a lot of things well those first four years he was a good college starter but he was not a great college quarterback and he was not a great downfield passer in particular he was just a very good you know he was he was the game manager who had a good arm and was fairly mobile and then he is physically developed he has you know gone from 175 pounds to about 205 pounds he's gotten more explosive as a rusher he's gotten better as a downfield passer and that's what's really changed but it took him five full years to do that drake may finished top 10 in the heisman voting in his second year uh so these same tiers pretty much as most people jj mccarthy also gaining ground kind of similarly to how he's doing in the market though for fantasy it seems a little less true and i talked about jj mccarthy i profiled him in the last episode but i do believe he's going to be drafted in the top 20 picks i do think he's going to be right around seventh eighth ninth on on my personal board and probably slightly higher than other people i don't think he's in that those top two tiers or however you want to phrase the top three quarterbacks because I don't think he's proven enough yet, just like a lot of other people, but I do see the projectable upside in the traits that make me believe in him enough to to put him in that top 10 pick range in a super flex league. And then last tier here, if I was doing tiers for the NFL draft, I would do it slightly slightly differently. But because I'm doing them for fantasy, my non-first round tier that I consider drafting is all the same to me. So I am adding another player here that most people don't have in the exact same tier with these guys. But I'm putting Bo Nix, Michael Penix Jr., and Spencer Rattler in the same tier. All these guys have some great arm talents, good things to say about them, but none of them quite get to the first round. Specifically with Nix and Penix, it's just the, the fact that 
the matter that with five and six years of experience, they've gotten to a point that is very impressive, but it is just not quite impressive enough to be in that first round grade for me, for Knicks, as, as much as the NFL has gone away from the deep ball more and more, it still is a concern for me that Knicks has one of the lowest average depth of targets from a projection perspective in college football that scares me in the projection of him. And then Michael Penix, more than any other player that gets projected in the first round, I have concerns with things you know, just not working at all at the next level, as good as he has potential to be because of how good his arm is and how good he moves in the pocket. When he's knocked off his spot, his his accuracy in general is kind of erratic in terms of specific placement of the ball. And when he's knocked off his spot, it seems to get even worse. And you saw that get mitigated a lot at the college level because he had such good wide receivers. And he will have, you know, NFL caliber wide receivers at the next level. But that ball placement is a, you know, is bordering on a red flag to me. And I haven't even talked about Penix's injury history yet. As someone who went to IU at the same time that Michael Penix was there, he had four straight season ending injuries. He was very talented even at that point, but he does have this big red flag around his, you know, his career that we can't really judge fairly because we don't know anything about, about the medicals ourselves, but it is a significant detail. Spencer Rattler, uh, improving in how people perceive him off the field. I think that's very important. And he's always had the arm talent. He's a little shorter in stature, but it's important to note that, you know, his, his offensive line situation at South Carolina was not good and that you know that's an sec team so that's a pretty negative situation to be in so just a really quick recap i have caleb williams at first small gap drake may and Jaden daniels small gap again jj mccarthy and then by far the biggest gap from my first round quarterbacks to my not first round quarterbacks where i have bo nix michael Penix jr and spencer rattler Now, for as much as the running back rankings are different on a team-to-team basis, my own running back rankings have stayed fairly stable, especially in my top 10. So Benson and Brooks, Trey Benson and Jonathan Brooks have stayed as my top two and mostly have stayed alone in that tier for themselves. Trey Benson has my favorite size adjusted burst. and I think Brooks is my favorite in terms of just a well-rounded running back. I talked about his reception numbers in the last few games before he tore his ACL, but he was really breaking out as a high volume receiving running back, which you don't really see in a cursory view of the numbers because it it came on a little late and he did miss, you know, the end of the season because of the injury. So Benson and Brooks, my top two guys, if there is a guy hot on the heels, it is my running back three as of my ranking show, you know, the, the, the fourth show, which did running back and wide receiver rankings in the middle tiers. Jalen Wright is my running back three, whereas, whereas Benson has my favorite size adjusted burst. Jalen Wright has my favorite burst generally in this class, especially, you know, if we're taking any running back that is at least listed over 200 pounds or can play at close to 200 pounds, just the way he, you know, explodes as a rusher that zero to zero to 60 time. I mean, obviously you're not going 60 miles an hour, but whatever zero to 60 time uh, on Jalen, Wright. That's what I call it. I, I really love it. Wrights is the best in the class. Benson's is the best when I factor in size. And so that is why those two are two of my three with Brooks, who is my most well-rounded. What really separates the guys who separate out my top five is their pass catching ability. 
So those two guys are Ray Davis and Bucky Irving. Now, Ray Davis is a little bit more my guy than Jalen Wright, even just because some people don't like him as much. And I mean, to be honest, I don't know how I feel about that because he is going to be 25 years old this year. And that is very scary. And definitely a controversy around his his value and something I myself don't like but you know age isn't a factor of longevity it's a factor of progression and I do believe Ray Davis has the progression excuses in terms of why he was not you know spotted by the NFL sooner and his situation the last two years as a running back at Vanderbilt and Kentucky is so challenging that it offsets some of the age advantages that I usually worry about. On top of it all, Ray Davis is five foot eight and a half as of the Senior Bowl, which is not an ideal height, but he has 220 pounds and had over 60 receptions the last two years combined. So those are checking a lot. So that's checking a lot of boxes. That is very intriguing to us. And then Bucky Irving won't go over the fact that he's small, just because so many other shows, you know, they like Bucky Irving. So you'll hear a lot of people defending why he can work at such a small size. Towards I don't know if as many people are going to be defending Ray Davis, but Bucky Irving, the, you know, the big thing is again the past catching he had over 80 receptions i believe the last two uh, seasons with over 50 this year those are big pass catching numbers so while he is a very slight running back not just in overall weight i find his stature to be very you know diminutive for the nfl game but bucky irving is a guy that does crack my top five running backs at this point because pass catching is so important for these fantasy running backs so speaking of fantasy running backs needing pass catching my next three running backs are listed where they are because i think they're a little bit more two down guys to me and that's Audric estimate of Notre Dame Blake Corum of Michigan and Braylon Allen of Wisconsin Braylon Allen of Wisconsin as as Whereas Ray Davis being at four is probably my my highest controversial ranking. Braylon Allen at eight is definitely the negative one that seems to get me the most, you know, talk back on social media platforms or whatnot. I thought Blake Corum at seven would be kind of similar, but it seems like as, as much as he gets ranked highly in aggregates, people don't come out to defend Blake Corum, at least at this stage, as much as they were even doing last year, it felt like, after his very, very good 2022 season. But, you know, when, when comparing Audric Estime to Braylon Allen, you know, people talk all the time about Braylon Allen being this exceptionally young player, and he is. There's no denying that. But Audric Estime is one of the youngest running backs have ever evaluated too. Now he is like four or five months older than Braylon Allen. Cause that's the whole you know thing with Braylon Allen. Braylon Allen is significantly younger than my second youngest running back I've ever evaluated. But at the same time, he just never had the peak season that I look for in the running back. And it's not just a statistical thing. There are issues I have with his burst and balance compared to, I think, the market. I don't think he generates as much power as people give him credit for, especially as quickly. I think he has very good downfield power, but I'm not sure he has first step power the same way that Derrick Henry needs to have first step power to be the running back he is, right? So that's why I have Braylon Allen a little bit lower. I fully acknowledge with his age this is a ranking that i could live to regret okay you're just going to make those sometimes when you rank that's that's just the reality but what i'll also say is people tell me all the time that you know the nfl is going to draft this guy earlier because he's projectable and i just don't see evidence that the nfl drafts running backs early because they're projectable and young i do see evidence that the nfl you know like early declares compared to non-early declares or seniors i see that but in terms of early declares being particularly young i don't see that and just last year we had a guy in israel of anaconda who was the second youngest running back i've ever evaluated three or four months 
older than Braylon Allen, but still had a much better peak season and most likely tested far better than Braylon Allen will. Now, Izzy did do it at a pro day, and so that is a little bit different, but his numbers were so insane. I really don't think that was just a pro day. I think he really is a, a very good athlete. And Israel Abanaconda went in the fifth round. No one was taking him you know, three rounds higher or even at the end of day two because he was young and projectable. He, you know, he fell to the fifth round. Now, maybe there's something we don't know about. I don't know. The point is, I don't see any evidence that the NFL is going to draft a player higher because they're exceptionally young at running back. They do draft early declares higher, and I do believe that Ray Davis could fall below where I have him because he's older and exceptionally older. But I don't see any evidence that because someone's under 21 as opposed to 21 and a half, the NFL is going to rush out and grab them at the running back position where it peaks so young. And so to round out my top 10, I had Marshawn Lloyd, Dylan Lowby also staying the same. I heard, I have heard significantly more heat than I was expecting to hear on Marshawn Lloyd. It seemed like he impressed a lot of people at the senior bowl. So that might be one I revisit. Lowby is a significantly older prospect coming from the FCS. There's a lot of flags there, but he has a first step quickness, size and pass catching once again, which really sells him as the player that I am ranking as my running back 10. I I also have Jaden Sheardon, who is up to my honorable mention one at this point, just on speculation, because he's just kind of this interesting mystery box. He's undersized. He went to the FCS level, but unlike Lauby, he isn't early declare. He only spent three years at the collegiate level. It is strange that he's skipping the FBS altogether because of that. Maybe that means the, F uh, the NFL is high on him rather. But, you know, it's the, he, he's this interesting mystery box profile. The reason he is not higher is that his weigh-in at the Shrine Bowl was right around 180 pounds. And so it's just really hard to, you know, the floor of a guy who's 180 pounds, who's never played above the FCS level, which if you're not clear on these distinctions, is the level outside the top 130-plus college football teams. That's, you know, that's obviously quite a projection to make on someone who doesn't have the size of Lauby, who, you know, it makes it easier to see it translate. So just to recap these running backs really quick, before I go on to the wide receivers, I have Trey Benson and Jonathan Brooks in the first tier with a minor gap. Be, uh, above Jalen Wright, who is quickly catching up to them. I then have a small gap behind them before Ray Davis of Kentucky and Bucky Irving of Oregon. And then another gap really defined by that pass catching before Audric Estime, Blake Corum, and Braylon Allen, who I like better than Marshawn Lloyd and Dylan Lauby, who round out my top 10 before my number one honorable mention in Jaden Sheridan. And then the wide receiver position is the position that is still by far the most fluid, and it probably should be the most fluid. You know, it's the position that the NFL takes 13 guys on in the top 50 picks, and only like four of them end up being good, or however that ended up going. It's just the way this position works. People target different people for different reasons. They believe in different archetypes. They believe that different archetypes can fit or fix their situations or fit with their quarterbacks for different reasons. And so it just is a hard position to grade because of all the things that come together at it. It's a position that, you know, you both find success by being good at everything and a position that you find success by just being able to dominate at a couple things and being flawed, depending on who you are. So by far the most fluid position, by far my most fluid rankings, my top three and the one that's a little bit different, my top 12 are the two tiers that are becoming the most clear. I'll get into it as I go, but I 
I, I really do like to consider the top three as a tier at this point, specifically because, you know, I do feel individually different about each of them. And I don't just mean that as who they are as players, but I mean that from a rankings perspective where I really do have it. Number one, Marvin Harrison Jr. Number two, Malik Neighbors. Number three, Roma Dunze. In a very, very clear order like that with about the same gap between each, which is not big, but is clear if that makes sense. Some I have found to be lower on Roma Dunze, and there are some youth production things you can look at because technically he did not produce uh, in his sophomore year. But here, here's one thing I'll say about that, and this is kind of the reason why I look at things holistically and not by raw black-white correlations because, you know, you can only map certain things on, you know, whatever variable you're studying. And I know all this stuff kind of sounds silly, but if we're going to say that one year is important, how young or old you are in that year is important too, even if it can only be different by a few months. And, you know, anyone who's gone to school understands fundamentally that within a school year, people get different age at different points. You know, there are people who are much older in the grade and people who are much younger in the grade. There are people who graduate or there are people who turn 18 before the school year starts. There are people who turn 18 after they graduate and graduate at 17 years old. And my point in saying all this is that Roma Dunze and Marvin Harrison Jr. are these two extremes. Roma Dunze graduated high school at 17 years old. Marvin Harrison probably turned 18 years old before he started his final year. And that is why Roma Dunze is only three months older than Marvin Harrison, despite being in college for one more full year, two or three months. And so the, the big key in saying all that is don't, doesn't the, the months don't matter. What matters is that if you're going to look solely at youth production, Roma Dunze had more of it than Marvin Harrison before those early years because he was starting at an earlier age and because you know Marvin Harrison Jr. didn't do very much that first year with other players on his team, you know, keeping him on the bench with Garrett Wilson, Jackson Smith and Jigba, and Chris Olave all at the same time being on that Ohio State team. Now, of course, he has the excuse for the no early production. That's not my point. My point is that if you're going to really worry specifically about early production in regard to Roma Dunze, it's worth knowing that Roma Dunze had more receiving yards before turning 20 years old than Marvin Harrison Jr., who didn't even have 200 receiving yards before turning 20 years old. So it feels odd saying this because Troy Franklin at the beginning of doing my deep dives, which was two shows ago on this next four uh, wide receivers, I, I had him at five and now I both feel like he's at four and potentially maybe separating a little bit. And I think my concern with Troy Franklin is that I do try to rank things for Devi leagues or four leagues uh, where prospects could potentially be tradable assets. Because regardless of how many listeners may play in those leagues, those leagues are the only ones where you have to actually make determinations. And so for that reason, and then just for the general sake of it, I really don't like yo-yoing people up and down my rankings. So when I think that certain players might get drafted far, far, far higher than a player, I sometimes do push that player up. Or when I'm worried that a player might be falling a little bit down, I push that player down. 
But the buzz has constantly been better and better and better with Troy Franklin, and I've always liked the analytics a little bit better, and I liked him on the film review a little bit better than I initially remembered, or however you want to phrase that. I just, my reevaluation came away higher on Troy Franklin. And so because he does separate himself so well analytically from the other guys that I put in the same tier as Troy Franklin, and because Troy Franklin uh, does seem to be getting a little bit more NFL draft buzz, he does seem to be somewhat separating himself as the wide receiver for to me you know there's something interesting about my next two guys and Keon Coleman and Brian Thomas Jr that there's something about them that they feel like they might belong in a tier with Troy Franklin to me and they feel like they might belong in a tier with A.D. Mitchell to me but they but A.D. Mitchell and Troy Franklin don't feel like they belong in the same tier to me and I don't know if that makes sense to anybody else but at, at least they're in the middle so it makes a little bit of sense but the whole point and what I'm getting at here is that those are guys that I see buying into the idea that they are not as safe necessarily though Troy Franklin has his own issues with safety when you consider just his general size but that they have the overall ability with this with the risk and the upside to be just as valuable as Troy Franklin whereas I could also talk myself into the idea that the the scary things the things that I'm worried about in their profiles you know, drive them down to the point where they're closer to A.D. Mitchell, a guy who has talent, but has a lot of unproven talent with, you know, some of that being the injury in the second year. But at the end of the day, A.D. Mitchell, someone who's sliding just a little bit for me, hasn't fallen out of the wide receiver seven spot, but it's hard when you're doing a deep dive on a profile as someone who believes in the analytical things to see all the numbers and them not be that good, right? I don't fully endorse this logic because I think you can get really subjective into, you know, when you're making arguments and when you're not. But I do think the most when I'm thinking about A.D. Mitchell back to a time this offseason where Daniel Jeremiah said something about the players that you find yourself making the most excuses for are sometimes the ones that you just got to say, maybe it isn't this guy. And that is the conflict I have with A.D. Mitchell right now. There's a lot of things I like because as someone who follows college football, it seems like the people around college football have thought he's extremely good and not just extremely projectable, but extremely good that he can do things for teams at any point in time because of his ability to say in the red zone. And so that is why I am still high on A.D. Mitchell. That is why I still have not moved him out of wide receiver seven, but he is a player who I am asking myself questions about. And the two players who are challenging him the most are not would not be the player who I last ranked at wide receiver eight because that is Xavier worthy. And as I mentioned in that show, wide receiver eight was a very conflicting place for me because I really started with him lower down that list. And I ended up with him at wide receiver eight and I didn't know how I felt about it. And there's so many things analytically, just looking at his freshman year that make me think that Xavier worthy should stay at eight, but I don't really love what he's done the last two years. I don't love the production. I don't even really like the production because the production uh, you know, it's it's fine, but it's also fine coming really strongly off of screens, swings, and simple one-read passes where he just took the ball and ran. And the reason that I worry that I'm ranking him too low and why he is still in my top 12 wide receivers, which again is my biggest tier break outside of the top three, is because of the speed, the potential to run around a 4-3, the ability to extend plays after the catch. These are things that I do think Xavier Worthy could at least potentially do right away at the NFL level. But 
that profile needs to be able to win downfield. And I'm not sure he can. I'm not sure he can at anything that is close to a contested catch point. And I'm not sure he can with his in a, I, I'm worried about him getting jammed up in those first five yards. And so Xavier Worthy is a player that has probably my biggest overall red flag because while it isn't an objective red flag, it's the thing I worry about the most. So I guess that's just the way to put it. So going back to it, the two players who are actually challenging A.D. Mitchell for wide receiver seven are Jalen Polk and Roman Wilson. Those are two guys I still I, I like quite a bit. There are a couple things I don't love about their profiles, but there are a lot of things I like about their traits and they've done enough at the college level that make me really feel like I can buy into those traits. So Jalen Polk, Roman Wilson, those guys round out my top nine wide receivers with the five to nine being kind of the most fluid tier where I really don't know what I'm doing with any of these guys. But I do think that's my five to nine in some order with Keon Coleman, Brian Thomas Jr., A.D. Mitchell, Jalen Polk, and Roman Wilson. So the last three guys up for me uh, in my top 12, and there are some controversial players being left out, obviously, and I'll talk about those, but the, the, the solid tier of top 12, the three last players I'm really feeling good about, or, you, you know, obviously to an extent, because the first one is Xavier Worthy, who I just talked about. The other two are Malachi Corley out of Western Kentucky and Malik Washington out of Virginia. If I had to guess between the three who I'm leaning to right now to lead this trio of this kind of last tier of three in my top 12, it is Malachi Corley because the other two do have a red flag in their physical makeup. All three of these guys, what what really makes them similar is that they're all guys who I see something that translates at the next level, but I'm not sure I see enough that translates at the next level to believe that they are high volume guys, but between something in the analytics or something that they do really, really really well, uh, probably more in Malachi Corley's case. I do still like them a good bit in this top 12 range. These are frankly three players that I'd be really excited to get on my NFL team. I almost said especially Corley in Washington. I don't know if that's true or not, but that kind of does say where my headspace is right now with Xavier Worthy. But anyway, my point being, Malachi Corley is the one that I would favor because he doesn't have a size red flag to where Malik Washington is 5'8", and Xavier Worthy is extremely lean. Malachi Corley, and not only that, but Malachi Corley is an extremely good athlete, both in terms of being well-rounded and being explosive on top of the well-roundedness. He did weigh in at 215 pounds at the senior bowl which i believe i had at like 85th percentile weight or something around that range at this point at the nfl game at least when i looked it up at the time i'm not sure it's been it's been a while so i don't know if that percentile is right but i do know he was 215 pounds at the senior bowl so so that's a that's a big guy uh, especially for you know being able to move as fast as he can as a yak receiver so those three round out my top 12 oh and malik washington if you would have asked me before the draft, how do I, pro- or before my rankings, how do I profile players to find sleepers? I would have never assumed that my answer would have come down to looking for older players. But I will say objectively that the players I'm finding that I am the highest on compared to the market as of today are Ray Davis and Malik Washington, who are two very old players that do have very concerning things in their profile. But I really like the upside both possess, even as small as Malik Washington is. This is a guy who had almost 50% of his college production, his college team's production in the passing receiving game 
last year. And then the year before, he actually had a sneaky high percentage of his team's passing production because it was a low-volume Northwestern team. I go into that more in the Malik Washington is Rising show. That is the third show I released, I believe. So if you want to dig deeper into Malik Washington, but the two players that I believe will get me the most flack and are my top two honorable mentions, and that's not for the same reason necessarily, but are Lad McConkey and Tez Walker. Lad McConkey, I do have some concerns with. He profiles very differently than Roman Wilson to me analytically because of the differences in their offenses are not things that I'm just, I think a lot of people are just brushing aside the differences in uh, the Michigan and Georgia offenses in their peak years because of the fact that they both dominated teams and won national championships. And I get that, but Georgia won those games by throwing the crap out of the ball and Latin McConkey didn't get many of those yards. Uh, Michigan won those games by really, really methodically taking their time and being extremely slow with the ball. And if you want a, a statistical representation of this, my own numbers show that in his 700-yard season, Lad McConkey was at around 17% of his team's proportional production in the receiving yard category. And in his peak season this past year, Roman Wilson was at 25%. That's a substantial difference between the two. And while Lad McConkey has a red flag there, that Roman Wilson does not. Aside from that, while the standard uh, size profiles would favor Lad McConkey because he's a little bit taller, the senior bowl uh, measured in his arms at 30 and 1 8 inch. I will cover the combine stuff, the specifics in the combine stuff in the weeds a little bit at the end. But that is a size that concerns me, especially for a guy where the very first note I wrote is, is he inside or is he inside outside versatile? Because if he's only inside, that's obviously a concern. And 30 and 1 8 inch arms are inside arms. That doesn't necessarily mean he will play inside. He does have a very good ability to, you know, stop, start, and gear shift. And in certain leagues, maybe even playing primarily inside will be good for his PPR floor. But at the end of the day, you are targeting from a draft perspective, either outside players or inside, outside versatile players. You're rarely, you're rarely targeting players who you think are only going to play in the slot and you know Malik Washington might be a little bit of that but I would rather bank on the guy with 47% of his team's production than 17 and I understand it's not that simple but to me the whole point of production and at the wide receiver position is that you use your traits to win and use your traits to prove things and use your traits to prove things over time. Lad McConkey has traits that I like but has he proven things with them over time? He has not. Not to the extent that I look for. So that is why he is an honorable mention and not in my top 12 wide receivers. And then Tez Walker is one of those guys where I was really excited for him. I really didn't like what the NCAA did, you know, in terms of with his eligibility. But at the end of the day, I think he got a lot of credit for his really exciting games and did not get enough flack for the games where he kind of disappeared and at the end of the day it is more of a traits thing i'm i'm worried about how he decelerates i'm worried about how he gears down so he's a older prospect 23 year old prospect concerned about some of the traits things didn't have a great senior bowl concerned about some of the numbers things so tez walker does have the size does have the speed some people were worried that he measured it at 6-2 going back to the arm length thing his arm length was really really nice and since i do favor that measurement slightly to height uh tez walker size doesn't bother me at all it has nothing to do with being under 6-2 i actually think his profile in that regard with his speed is going to be exceptional uh, on my lists but he is the honorable mention number two to me there's obviously a lot more players 
Some of those get discussed in my wide receiver eight through 15 show, which was the fourth show I did. So if you're interested in a few more players, uh, keep an eye out for that. I profiled Javon Baker on the last episode. So, you know, keep an eye out for that, but that is about all I have for this wide receiver position. And the only thing to add, Oh, and I should recap it really quick. So, you know, first tier Marvin Harrison, Jr., Malik Neighbors, Roma Dunze, tear break. I do think Troy Franklin is separating himself just a little bit from the pack, but four to nine or five to nine is very fluid with me. With Keon Coleman, Brian Thomas Jr., A.D. Mitchell, Jalen Polk, and Roman Wilson wrapping out those, you know, nine wide receivers there. And then after that, you have Malachi Corley, Xavier Worthy, and Malik Washington really rounding out the biggest tier uh, that I have in my top 12 with Lad McConkey and Tez Walker being the honorable mentions outside of that list. And then the only thing I wanted to say about tight end, really I could have skipped tight end probably for this specific show, but I wanted to say where the tight end tier, I guess, fits into the big board as a whole, because to me, it's a, just a little bit lower than for a lot of other people. Because while I love Brock Bowers and I love Brock Bowers as a prospect, and I love Brock Bowers as a, as a college football player, I guess that's why I always try to say with Brock Bowers is that, you know, you've gotten to see him be not just one of the best tight ends, but one of the best players in college football the last three years. And I get that that is why people want to buy into him this position is different than any other position hitting at it has been a complete crapshoot the most successful archetypes at it have become have come often later in the draft and at the end of the day finishing top eight does not matter it only matters when you get into the top three the top five range right cole Komet has finished as a top eight tight end in most scoring formats the last two years. But if you do not play in a league with tight end premium or a significant tight end premium, Cole Komet is not that significant of a tight end. You can compare that to any other position. I know it's obvious, but just to say it, if JJ McCarthy is a top eight quarterback twice, or if Keon Coleman is a top eight wide receiver twice, those are smash hits at their current draft price. End of discussion. End of the story. Brock Bowers is not. And so it's just really hard to me. I understand that different people all see this game differently. But to me, I see tight end as just this amazingly tight needle to thread where I understand why I like this player. But it's like it's like I really like him as a shooter, but he's the only guy who has to shoot from 45 feet out, you know? Uh I don't like the idea of betting on the tight end position over profiles of players that I really like who get drafted highly, right? Players like Troy Franklin, players like Jonathan Brooks, players like Trey Benson, players like Jalen Wright even. If these guys go in my top draft capital ranges, which for wide receivers probably 10, 15, 20 picks, depending on the profile of the wide receiver, and for running backs is in the top 50 to 70, 60, 70 picks, depending on the running back again, those guys are going to go over. Brock Bowers to me, not just Roma Dunze, because Roma Dunze is definitely going to go over Brock Bowers for me on my big board. So that is a bit of a controversial point because I do have Brock Bowers lower than where he is most often on the market. And so that is where I currently stand with the rookie class entering the 2024 NFL scouting combine. Now the combine being this week, there is a chance that there will change some of these things, but hopefully not that much. That is kind of the goal. So I covered the combine at the beginning a little bit, but just like I said, when I covered the combine there, I want to go in just a little bit more detail now, particularly for the people who really profile players themselves and scout players themselves and build their own scouting profiles in terms of 
is what I'm looking for in the scouting combine. So if you don't know a number when it comes to any kind of measurable size, you know, anything that gets measured at the combine, if you don't know a number or how it ranks historically, always look by the percentile. That's just a basic rule of thumb for anything. I use percentiles for basically as many things as I can, because even if the number doesn't like really translate into your head in terms of, you know, I think some people don't like percentiles because they hear 70th percentile height and they go, well, I don't know how tall it is. I don't really care how tall it is. I know exactly what I need to know, which is that it's in the 70th percentile of everybody who's ever played that position. So, you know, that's just kind of how I look at percentiles. I don't know if everybody works that way, but I do think, especially if it's a number that you're not familiar with, that's the way you should go about it. Uh, The people that uh, do relative athletic score, if you're not familiar on how to find uh, percentiles there are several databases if you're interested in a particular player you can reach out to me at any point any of the social medias but what you really want to look out for relative athletic score the people who do that the ras scores those people are really quick at updating on twitter with their information and their information uses percentiles as well and is also color coded so it's really easy to pick up on so yeah into the positions themselves quarterback there's really still nothing like not to like this is supposed to be the the section where I go into deeper what I am looking for I guess it's certain quarterbacks like I mean Anthony Richardson it does matter what he you know physically does at the combine and there are field drills so seeing people throw next to one another can be valuable on a on sometimes and so if if the quarterbacks throw and they throw next to each other it's nice to get to see them throw next to each other but for the most part quarterback is just a position that there's not really too much to talk about there when it comes to the running back position and to be clear none of these things are extremely important especially on an individual basis but the 40 is probably a little bit overrated and the jumps are probably a little bit underrated now again to be clear that's not because it's like incredibly important but the 40 is what gets the buzz the 40 is what gets the twitter the 40 is what gets the retweets and the press and the hype media and that is why it gets treated as being so much more important to whereas you know where you stack up percentiles in broad jump and vertical can be just as important especially cuz running back is this position where it's not as much what you do in the open field because any running back who reaches the open field is dangerous Obviously, Devon Achan is more dangerous than somebody who is extremely slow, but even a slow guy who gets to the, or a relatively slow guy, obviously, who gets to the open field can do a substantial amount of damage. What what really matters for the sustainability of the position is how well you explode, and specifically how well you explode from stopped or near stopped situations which is why i think jumps are so important because that is what a jump is it is from a stationary position and exploding out of a stationary position and so that is why it is slightly more important than it usually gets categorized as being at the running back position especially because once again people don't know what what they did they hear inches and they just like all right i guess he jumped higher than some people i don't know and so that's why you just got to look at the percentiles uh what broad jump percentile are what vertical jump percentiles are and also just you know if you're if you're looking at the whole board of how people stack up you can kind of get the picture of it of how people stack up within a class within each other you know when you see Keishon Butte down at 29 inches and then you see that the lowest wide receiver by several inches and then you look at the offensive linemen and you see that several of the offensive linemen jumped higher than 29 inches you can get a clear picture without actually looking at the percentile uh, at the running back position I don't care too much about height and so for that reason in particular i like to use bmi instead of weight if possible 
I typically use weight with wide receivers just because I already use height more often in other parts of the measurement. And so I don't want to also factor in height there. I kind of, you know, it that's getting a little too into things, I guess, maybe. But so BMI is what I look for at the running back position. I don't find BMI is necessarily representative of anything on field in terms of traits. Now, to be clear, it is somewhat related to your power and more than somewhat. But I've seen a lot of big running backs be soft or whatever you want to call it and i've seen a lot of smaller running backs like bucky irving who can bounce through tackles really really well the biggest thing about size is going to be perceived durability i'm not even going to say durability i don't know how durability works i've never found out how to predict how durability works and i'm not a doctor but perceived durability which is definitely something the nfl cares about is something that's going to be very big when it comes to a player's bmi and their you know their overall stature that's kind of you know that's kind of just getting harder into how to project how the nfl feels about that players don't really do agility drills anymore i don't know if that's because of the change of schedule or because people just want to really plan for one and then the other right like take jackson smith and jegba completely doesn't train for the 40 at all or he didn't have to train for the 40 i guess what i'm getting at because he didn't run it at the combine then when he does the three cone at the combine he does it in an elite way and then when he does the 40 at ohio state which has an infamously fast track he is great at both these drills and i think you're going to see players do things like this because of the hype around the 40 i do think you see more people are going to want to run the 40 at the nfl scouting combine and then if if they do there are jolty drills you'll see them do those more often moving forward at the pro day we're already seeing that if we saw the agility drills i would really i would really like that and like to see them um but it's also hard because when the you know, the last time a lot of players did it, the scores were worse than we've seen them recently, and maybe that was a change in the schedule. But if the next time a few players did it, or a lot of players did it, they were worse again, it would be hard for me to not see that as a pattern. So uh, that's just, again, getting into some of the weeds thing, things with this combine in general. I just don't expect people to run the agility drills, so I guess it's probably just a waste of time to talk about. But at wide receiver, I've talked about it many times on this show, I look at three things instead of two. Instead of height and weight, I look at height, weight, and arm length. Now, to be clear, I think a lot of people do this in like the NFL scouting community. I just don't see anybody talk about it really for fantasy. And if we're projecting prospects at this level, I, I do think it's worth talking about because, you know, if a player doesn't hit at all, he's definitely not going to be valuable for fantasy. And to me, arm length is actually more important than height. And so it's not necessarily that I think it's very important, but if we're going to talk about a player's height all the time, which we do talk about players' heights all the time within, you know, a certain amount when, when we're talking about physical sizes and builds, I think arm length is an important one to build, bring up. And I think arm length is more important because I think arm length is more important in how you win within those first five yards. And I think arm length is also more important at the catch point. So at, at both major points of attack, both at the release and at the catch point, I believe arm length to be more important. And so arm length is a measurement that I look for, especially when I'm trying to avoid outliers, right? The major the biggest thing with size is that you want to avoid outliers most wide receivers that you truly truly like you should be fine even if they run in the four fives unless you really expected them to do something different the real thing you're worried about is guys who are physical outliers at different spots and so arm length is just one more spot where i'm looking for physical outliers guys who have smaller arms i like to see arms get up to 31 inches or above but in the high 30s is also 
fairly fine as long as I really like the player, especially their separation or explosiveness ability, but just some things I look for there. And then similarly, jumps slightly underrated, a little bit differently than wide receiver or a little bit differently than running back, but I do think it's similar in that the explosive drills a little bit underrated, the 40 a little bit overrated, but all those drills I don't care about nearly as much at wide receiver. If if we got, again, I don't want to go into the agility drills again, but if we got the agility drills and we got good numbers on the agility drills, I would care the most about the agility drills, but I don't think we're going to get them and I don't think we're going to get good numbers on them. And then there's really nothing at tight end because tight end's so scattershot. The only thing I would say at tight end is if you're deciding between multiple later tight ends, you know, if you're talking about the top tight ends, you're probably looking for a Bowers, someone who's been great in college, like genuinely great. Even Michael Meyer, um, to an extent, Sam Laporta, you know, the only exception to that out of the first four tight ends last year was Luke Musgrave because Luke Musgrave only played in really two, two games and then got hurt. But the other guys could have legitimately all been argued to be the number one pass catching option for their teams at, and, you know, in, in those given years. And so I think that's, you know, the main thing you're looking for out of a tight end. And so if you, if you're focusing only on the late round guys, you're looking for guys who are the best athletes, ideally, but again, the tight end, such a, it's such a crapshoot. It's such a scattershot position. What has success? What doesn't have success? If we were able to project it, you know, Gavin Escobar wouldn't go right before Travis Kelsey. Right. And I know that happens in like a lot of positions, but it's, it's not quite the same as it is with tight end because with every other position, there's a, there's a balance that brings it back in the sense that we have a lot of hits highly drafted. There's not that in tight end. You know, the top two guys, the last however long, are a guy drafted in the third round, uh, you know, like I just said after Gavin Escobar, and a guy drafted in the second round, or I believe in the second round, but the second tight end drafted by his team after Hayden Hurst in that draft. And even Sam Laporta, as good as Sam Laporta was and as highly drafted as Sam Laporta was, Sam Laporta was not the first tight end drafted in the class. And there were several tight ends drafted around him too. And so it's just a very hard to project position. And so that is all I have for today's show. If this was your first show and you want to let me know how you think I'm doing, please do. This is the long on the longer side of the episodes, but obviously there was a lot to talk about. If you're still on the fence about subscribing or giving any credit to this show at all, all I would ask is do consider listening to it again. I should have a new episode out by Thursday, that episode will follow up the conversation on the keep trade cut and fancy calc NFL values that I started this show with. It'll also go deeper onto Jaden Daniels, uh, Ricky Pearsall, and Lad McConkey, specifically into Ricky Pearsall and Lad McConkey. I'm going to really try to figure out if I'm still going to stay where I'm at or if I'm going to start joining in where other people are on those two players. Uh, I might also at that point have an outline for what I'm going to do uh, during draft week. I know a lot of people, specifically people who dig deep, are going to be in certain leagues sometimes that draft really soon after the NFL draft. So I just want to outline what my plans are, uh, especially for the immediate draft week and week after the draft for my reaction big boards for the NFL draft that will react to the first two days, first three days, and have as much updated information out as early as possible because I want this audience to stay ahead of schedule. So until next time, stay safe, y'all.